2006, March 9th. Today is lecture number 43, Are We Alone? Intelligent Life in the Universe, which will begin in just a moment. I'll be giving an overall view, overview of the class. Okay, so today we're going to be continuing in our series of lectures on frontiers of astronomy, in particular things we know and, more importantly, things we don't know. One of the things I find is that when people find out you're an astronomer, first of all, if they mistake you for an astrologer, you know to end that particular conversation at the tea party right away, uh, which happens fairly often, although I was somewhat disturbed a couple of years ago when I got sent a note entitled to me, Department of Astrology, the Ohio State University. That wouldn't have been so bothersome if it hadn't come from NASA. (laughs) Clearly, the uh, the subcontractor wasn't very well very carefully selected. That or their spell checker kind of lost it. Um, But if I find myself at parties or gatherings or things like that, people find out I'm an astronomer, they usually, the first thing they'll ask me about is, do I, what about black holes, things like that? But, but then the second most frequent question is, do I think there's life elsewhere in the universe? And it's in fact a question I think a lot of, probably motivated, I would imagine, a lot of you have an interest in taking this class or classes like it, astronomy, because it's one of those questions that pretty much is, is the big question on people's mind. If you start talking about extraterrestrial intelligence or life elsewhere, or even just the discovery of planets, it gets a tremendous amount of attention. I've been involved in a project for a number of years that's been searching for planets around other stars. I'm only a minor player. I basically play a, a technical role in helping to reduce the, the vast quantities of data we take for this, this project. But we have, in the past year, discovered two planets using this gravitational lensing technique. They've both been pretty big. One was kind of a one-and-a-half Jupiter planet somewhere tens of kiloparsecs away towards the galactic bulge. The other one, which is going to be announced uh, next week on Tuesday, is closer to a few times the mass of the Earth. It's actually either a hot Neptune or even perhaps even more exciting, it might be the failed core of a Jupiter or something like that. It's a very odd mass range in a very odd place. When I first started in astronomy, we only knew of one solar system, ours, and the nine planets and, and the one inhabited planet. We now know of, of nearly 160 planets around, or nearly 200 planets around 100 and some odd stars. And that number has been growing every year. The techniques for searching for planets has been getting ever better and better, and the census is now that we live in a universe where there are lots of planets, but very few of those planets are even close to analogs for our own Earth. Most of them are gas giants of some kind in funny close orbits to, the, to, the, to their stars. So we've learned an awful lot in the last few years, and the big question now is, was there life elsewhere in the universe? Now, unlike any of my other lectures, I'm not going to begin with a key ideas slide. Instead, I'm going to baldly state four opinions and then attempt through this lecture to defend them. The first of these opinions is that I believe that it is highly likely that intelligent life has arisen elsewhere in the universe, and I'll show you why I think that in a moment. The second thing, however, is while I believe that there is intelligent life somewhere out there in the vast universe, I do not believe any of it has visited here, either now or in the past. The third is that the lack of visits may in fact be explained very naturally, not by the lack of life, but by the incredible difficulty of interstellar travel. It just simply takes enormous amounts of energy to travel between the vast distances between the stars. Second thing is, there may be vast distances between those stars which may be capable of harboring intelligent life within our own galaxy. We don't expect them to be nearby, so the travel requirements become even more extreme. And fourth, 
I think that if we do make contact with an intelligent civilization somewhere outside of our own solar system, we are not going to shake hands. We are going to exchange radio messages over many generations, if that. So that's the ideas we're going, the opinions I'm going to attempt to, uh, to defend today. And I'm going to try to put this on a, the goal of this lecture is to put the whole question of extraterrestrial life on a scientific basis. It's basically the same theme we had yesterday, where I, I took up the question of time travel, which you think belongs between the pages of, uh, of science fiction or perhaps in a DVD somewhere. But in fact, time travel is an illuminating question. I think intelligent life is also an illuminating question, but of a different kind. I don't think it's going to inform us very much about physics. But we do need to understand a lot of astrophysics to answer the question. In fact, in my opinion, this is a, question, this is a lecture which I have to give in 162, because in 161, you don't have enough background yet to really understand all the various pieces and nuances of this context. But now you do. You've got all the pieces we need to know to address this question. So what do we mean by life? Well, one of the things we can ask to sort of approach this question scientifically is to ask what the basic requirements for life are. And I would say that, that in general, my biologist friends would agree that the requirements for life are threefold. The first of these is energy. You need some energy for life. Life is an energetic process. It requires heat, warmth, and metabolism, if you will. One of the particular things you need in energy is you need to have an environment in which there are liquids, primarily liquid water, but that you could also have life potentially in a liquid methane environment. There are very few environments where the amount of energy is necessary that the dominant form of the gases in elemental form are in a liquid form. On the Earth, that's water. On Titan, for example, it's liquid methane. Methane is to water, basically methane is to hydrogen what water is to oxygen environments. You also need energy to fuel chemical reactions. This energy can come from sunlight. It can come from geothermal energy, quite surprising. And the chemical reactions that we think are important for, for responsible for life in its very form are oxygen reactions, basically oxidation reactions, and anoxic reactions. There are certain types of life that in fact are poisoned by oxygen and live in, in anaerobic environments, as they're called. We can have, but there's chemical energy to be tapped, but liquids help transport chemicals. Liquids are very good for transporting complex chemicals. So you need a liquid of some kind. Water is what does it for us on Earth, but we can't preclude that maybe some kind of methane would do that, but it's going to be very cold, so there's certainly some challenges in understanding that. The second requirement you have to have for life is you have to have complex chemistry. If you look inside of our bodies, we have some extremely complex molecules. You need to build those complex molecules. You have to have more than just hydrogen and helium. Helium does you no good because helium is chemically inert. It doesn't form compounds. Hydrogen forms compounds, but it forms compounds with oxygen, nitrogen, and carbon. Hydrogen and, ox hydrogen and carbon is methane. Hydrogen and oxygen is water. Hydrogen and fluorine is one hell of an acid. So that's probably a bad thing. And then you run out at neon. You also need some heavier stuff. There's iron in our blood. There's calcium in our bones. So you need heavy elements. The other thing you probably need is carbon as a building blocks for complex molecules. Carbon has a wonderful electronic structure. The chemists in this building do a lot of so-called organic chemistry. Organic chemistry is basically carbon-based chemistry. And it's extremely rich. There's an extremely large and wide variety of carbon compounds you can build. There's only a handful of hydrogen compounds you can build. 
My chemist friends also tell me that there's also a spectacular range of not only carbon, but you drop down below it on the periodic table, silicon and germanium compounds. Silicon is very, very abundant. Germanium is extremely rare and extremely expensive. And carbon, the universe is lousy with carbon in general terms. So this car carbon chemistry and silicon chemistry resemble each other, but there's a lot more carbon than silicon. Now, this isn't to preclude that maybe somewhere in the universe there's a silicon-based chemistry like carbon-based chemistry. But you know there's a lot of carbon out there, thousands of times more carbon than silicon. So if I was to guess as to what kind of chemistry dominates life, I'd put my money on carbon chemistry. Now, whether that's carbon and oxygen chemistry, like here, or carbon and hydrogen chemistry, that's an open question. The third thing you need is you need to be protected from ultraviolet light. UV is harmful, and not just because of sunburns and skin cancer, but that's a clue. Ultraviolet light has an energy comparable to the bond energy between atoms in complex molecules, which means a single UV photon can break or alter the bonds in those complex molecules that are responsible for life. Those breaking bonds often leads to oxidation. That's usually the reaction in our own bodies. And sometimes the appearance of those oxidation reactions in damaged molecules sets the cellular machinery going crazy and leads to things like cancers and mutations. So high energy environments are basically don't, are, are bad for complex molecules and complex molecules changing state themselves can cause mutations, and if you have a lot of mutations in your environment, you're unlikely to have complex, multicellular, very complexly built life forms emerge, because it simply will be an environment inimical to them. The ways you protect from ultraviolet light on the Earth, on the surface, we're protected by the ozone layer. If the ozone layer was stripped off the Earth, we'd be in big trouble, because the ultraviolet light would lead to tremendous mutations, skin cancer in humans, sheep, and everybody else. It'd be a real problem. Underwater, you'd be safe because the underwater absorbs ultraviolet radiation. So you would have a lot of marine life in, an, in, an, in a planet without any ozone. But surface life would be very difficult. Or you can burrow deep underground. Deep underground, you're obviously shielded from there. But you'd need some other source of energy because you wouldn't be getting it from sunlight if you're underground. Filtered sunlight for underwater, maybe you float to the surface, get a little sunlight, and then bop below the surface before you get burned up. You can imagine life in those forms. But complex life, life that lives on a surface of a planet, is going to need to have a planet which is protected in some way from ultraviolet radiation. Or maybe the animals themselves will evolve some kind of you know, skin or shield or shell that blocks out radiation. Who knows? It's really hard to say. Now, life is tough. And I don't just mean that as in life is a bitch. Life is tough. Life is tough because life actually is surprising. It survives in the most amazing environments. You look at the life around us, we're pretty wimpy. We can't take much changes in heat and cold and environment. But there's forms of life, albeit fairly simple life on the Earth, that lives in some amazing environments. There's a group of life that biologists are beginning to call dark life, sometimes called geo, um, there's a name for those, geophilic life. These are bacteria that thrive deep inside the interior of the Earth. They're bacteria that are found in rocks inside of mines. that have no business being there otherwise. Or deep inside of polar ice that hasn't ever seen the sun probably for millions of years. And yet they're thriving there. It's an environment they've learned to gather energy from their environment without using sunlight. There's extremophiles called hot life. These are microbes that exist in boiling geysers. 
There's a picture down here in the lower corner. This is a geyser in, in um, Yellowstone National Park. It's a geyser pool. The water in there is, is boiling. It's just like you could make tea out of it if it wasn't for all the nasty sulfur compounds in this stuff. And yet there is this wonderful bacterium that can survive in there, right? Your mom always told you, boil water to kill bacteria. None of that bacteria is, I love the name, Bacillus infernus, the infernal bacterium. It thrives in boiling water. In fact, it dies if it gets cold. It gathers its energy from the heat around it, and it's built up a metabolism that can survive temperatures that are converting water into vapor. Deep ocean thermal vents were surprises. Deep in the ocean, near volcanic thermal vents, they found life teeming around them. You'd think the environment, the water here is 300 degrees Fahrenheit. That's above boiling, but it's under high pressure, so it's still liquid. That would destroy most molecules. It would cook most meat. And yet here's these tube worms and bacteria that thrive in that heat deep in the under the ocean. In fact, they're gaining their energy for their metabolism from that surrounding so far below the ocean no sunlight ever reaches. And finally, the strangest thing is we've actually found life on the moon. Not life that originated on the moon, but a camera from the Surveyor 3 lander was picked off the moon after three years by the Apollo 12 astronauts and brought back to the Earth. It wasn't sterilized properly like they thought it was in the laboratory, and they found inside the underside of the camera streptococcus bacteria. Whenever you guys sneeze, you're spraying streptococcus all over your neighbors. We carry them around us. The strep bacterium is tough. It's, those strep bacteria survived three years in the lunar vacuum. Now, admittedly, those were underneath the spacecraft and shielded from ultraviolet light. But these bacteria, without reproducing, just simply hunkered down for three calendar years in the lunar airless world. And when they were brought back to life, they were cultured and sprang back to life. That's tough. Now, that's terrestrial bacteria. So if life is this tough, maybe we shouldn't be looking for soft, paradisical environments. Maybe we can look around us. So first of all, we know there's life in the solar system on Earth. What about elsewhere in the solar system? One possibility is Mars. Maybe not now, but maybe in the distant past. Mars, we have now firm observational evidence that water was liquid in Mars's distant past, maybe in the first billion years of its existence. We see evidence of flows from underwater ice, which has been melted by impacts or volcanism. The supposition is Mars may have had a much heavier atmosphere in the past. But over the last few, three, four billion years, its gravity is too low to hold on to that atmosphere very well. And so it lost its carbon dioxide, it lost its water vapor. Those bits that weren't frozen into the subsoil have wafted away into space. But if I turn the clock back three billion years, conditions may have been right for life. Maybe not multicellular life may not have had a chance to get started, but maybe bacterial life is there. And who knows, maybe deep inside the ground we'll find bacteria living on Mars just like there are bacteria living deep in the polar ice or deep in mines on the Earth. That's one of the reasons we're going back to Mars repeatedly with robotic, telescope, robotic spacecraft. This is one of the places we really think we could look for life. The other surprising place is the moon of Jupiter, Europa. Europa is an ice moon, but underneath it is a rocky interior, which may in fact harbor a liquid ocean hiding beneath the planet-girding ice caps. It's got a young geologic surface. It doesn't have many craters in it. It's smooth. It's active, it's heated, not by internal heat like on the Earth, it's heated by tides in the, in the Jupiter environment. The huge gravitational tides squeeze and stretch the, the moon repeatedly and keep its interior warm. 
Those tides are sufficient to make Io volcanic, although it's a sulfur volcanism. But on Europa, it may be enough to turn the under, under the surface ice liquid. It could just be a mushy amalgam, but it could be liquid. Well, if there's liquid water and there's heat, who knows? Maybe there's life analogous to the black smoker life in the deep ocean vents on the Earth. There was a mission being planned to actually try to drop an ice-burrowing robot onto Europa from a nuclear-powered spacecraft called GEMO, the Jupiter Ice Moons Observer, that was just canceled by the Congress. So we're not going to have the answer to that one, I'm afraid, for quite some time. Finally, Titan. Let's pick the most obviously inhospitable place, the giant moon of Saturn, which has a heavy one and a half Earth atmosphere atmosphere. It has complex methane chemistry. It's too cold for water. Water is like a rock on, methane, on, on Titan. But methane is liquid. Here are flow channels for methane, and these are basically methane mudflats, liquid methane mixed in with rock and ice, water ice. Well, we have detect, we've dropped a probe on the surface of Titan, the Huygens probe, we've detected complex molecules, albeit complex hydrogen compounds instead of complex oxygen chemistry compounds. It's very, very cold. It's 200 and some odd degrees below zero Celsius. But who knows? Maybe there's just enough heat. Maybe there's just enough of the right kind of thing that a funny kind of liquid methane life rather than liquid water life exists here. That's total speculation, but it's an obvious place in our solar system to look. Each of these seem to satisfy the basic requirements. Complex chemistry, energy, and protection from ultraviolet radiation, although Mars, the ultraviolet radiation protection is below the surface, not on the surface itself because it has no ozone layer. Europe is far enough out that the UV may not be as big a problem, but again, it's protected by being underwater, and Titan has an immense atmosphere which would absorb ultraviolet radiation from the surface. So these places have the requirements, and this is going to be the focus, I think, of the next generation of explorations in our solar system, because it's the obvious places to look from home. Well, that's life, but that's a bunch of bacteria, and you can't have a very enlightening conversation with a bacterium culture. But you really want, we really want someone to talk to. We want someone to exchange ideas with. That's our real conception of life in the world, and that's what people want. They want to meet E.T., now, what we mean by intelligent life usually has a series of criteria. One of these is a highly advanced technological civilization, tool-using civilizations that have high levels of technique, hence the name technology. They're capable of communicating across interstellar distances using radio or light or some form of electromagnetic radiation. We can do that, so we expect them to do it too. Maybe even life capable of interstellar travel using spacecraft, of physically traveling the distances between the stars. And that life has a curiosity about it, that intelligence equals curiosity, and they want to meet other forms of life just as much as we want to meet them. In other words, we're looking for life like us in some fashion. It may not look like us, but it's kind of composed like us, and at some vague level, it thinks like us. So we're looking for others like us. That's what we mean by intelligent. Of course, this now begs the question, what do we, do we, in fact, qualify as intelligent? Actually, it doesn't beg the question at all. It raises the question, do we qualify as intelligent? I would answer the question is just barely, and that's not a snarky comment. That's actually a statement that we're just emerging into the definition of intelligence that we're seeking on other worlds. 
meaning that we've only had radio communications technology for about one century. It's actually less than a, about a century of radio at this point. That's electromagnetic radiation communications. You can't communicate across interstellar distances using Pony Express. We've only had very limited short duration manned space flight for about 40 years. Actually, it's getting kind of close to 50 years now, which is telling you how old I am. 1961 was the first manned space flight. That was only uh, 45 years ago. And we've only traveled human beings as far as our own moon. That's only 300,000 kilometers away. The nearest stars are trillions of kilometers away. So we've only begun to take the first baby steps off our own planet. We haven't even broken free of our own planet's gravity yet, really, to really think about that, except on the moon. And that's only been done by a handful, less than a dozen men. Uh, exactly a dozen men. We've sent robotic spacecraft out of our solar system. The Voyager and the Pioneer probes are well on their way into interstellar space, but that's only happened in the last decade or so. And finally, we may or may not have sufficiently sensitive radio detection equipment that could pick up and recognize intelligently origin signals from elsewhere in our own galaxy. We've only really had that capability probably for about two, maybe three decades, but that's being very generous to the 1970s level technology. In reality, we're only just now beginning to build radio receivers of sufficient complexity that we can recognize a signal dug out of extremely large quantities of noise. We're running pretty good. In fact, some of the technologies are what makes your cell phone work so well most times. So that's my belief there. That's what we mean by intelligent, and that's what we mean by life and its requirements. Now we've got to go out looking and ask, well, do the conditions that are, A, conducive for life at all, energy, complex chemistry, and shielding from ultraviolet radiation exist elsewhere in our galaxy? And can we guess as best we can at the level of intelligent life that might exist out there? One of the reasons why I have a, an optimism that there is life elsewhere in the universe is just simply the sheer weight of numbers. And that is we're dealing with a universe that is extremely vast and extremely rich in resources. And so if we arose on this small planet, it must have happened somewhere else. Let me give you an idea of just sort of what those numbers look like. Roughly speaking, as we've seen in the last few weeks, there are 200 billion galaxies in round numbers in the visible universe that I can see when I look out with our telescopes and our Hubble Space Telescope, I can count just galaxies as far as the eye can see. Our own Milky Way, a single galaxy, contains about 200 billion stars. Maybe if I do an average between big galaxies and small galaxies, a good round number average is that the average number of stars per galaxy is 100 billion. Well, if I have 200 billion galaxies with an average of 100 billion stars per, that gives me a total of 2 times 10 to the 22 or 20 billion trillion stars in the visible universe. Now, even if I'm extremely generous, and I say that the chance of life arising only has a probability of one in a trillion, which means it only arose once in our own galaxy, which only has 200 billion stars, then that even at one in a trillion odds, which none of you would want to take money on, would in fact give you more than 20 billion possible places for life to occur. That's a huge number. That's basically one-tenth of the stars in our galaxy, but now we have to spread them among 200 billion galaxies. So even if I just take a very pessimistic view of the probability of life, one in a trillion, and all the in that of intelligent life and so forth, that's a lot. 20 billion is a huge number, so somewhere it must exist. The challenge, of course, is asking the question of, well, does it exist in a form that we can actually go out and contact ourselves? And that's the big question. Yes, front. 
cosmological principle, the fact that there's no special places in the universe? Yeah, the question in front was, wouldn't this idea and this probability exercise be supported by the cosmological principle? Exactly. There's nothing special about the Earth. There's nothing special about the Milky Way that makes it more or less conducive to life in some grand sense. There are physical details, presence of energy, presence of complex chemistry, protection from UV, but there's no reason not to believe that those conditions are not replicated at many different places in the, in the universe. Heck, they're replicated at least a half dozen places in our own solar system. So clearly the cosmological principle plays a role that says there's nothing special about the Milky Way. However, we're going to stick to the Milky Way because it's at least at hand. And then we're going to be able to say whatever I dis discover, and this is a nice, nice lead-in question, whatever I conclude about the Milky Way should apply in equal measure to all the galaxies of the visible universe. There's nothing special about our Milky Way. So the cosmological principle really does come and play a role. Very good, very good question. So let's look at the requirements for life now, but from a planetary scale. What makes a good planet? What makes a good home? Well, one of those things, now this is where we really get into the stuff we've been learning in the last few weeks. You want to pick a long-lived, stable star. You don't want to live around an O or a B star because it only lives for 10 million years before it goes supernova, and supernova are just bad for real estate prices. So you don't want to go live near a massive star. They're just bad. Good stars are those that live at least 3 billion years old. Why did I pick 3 billion years? Because that's basically how long life has existed on the Earth. So if I needed to pick a number, that's as good a number as any I got at hand. So I need a star to live at least as long as life has existed on our own planet, using it as an analogy. That means I need to find stars that live at least 3 billion years on the main sequence before they start going crazy. That's going to tell me F, G, and K stars. The Sun is a G2 star, lands right in the middle of that group. O and B stars and A stars are bad. They're bad because they're short-lived. They're also very hot stars. Remember, O, B, A, F, G, K, M, L, T, from hot to cold. A hot star produces lots of ultraviolet radiation. Therefore, you're going to have to have a lot of ultraviolet shielding to protect any life on those planets, to protect any complex chemistry on those planets. So you really don't want to be in a UV-rich environment. Curiously, the other form of bad star would be like M stars. L stars would be equally bad because they're faint. They're really small, they're really dim, they don't produce a lot of sunlight. So you're not going to get a lot of energy out of them unless you're snuggled up real close. Turns out M dwarfs have an even bigger problem. They tend to be magnetically active, especially when they're young, and have solar flares on them that would make the solar flares on our own planet look poopy by comparison. The flares we see on some M stars light up the sky, literally, for the few seconds they go off. That would be just a bad radiation environment for any planets nearby. So really we're going to ask about the fraction of F, G, and K stars on the main sequence. So that immediately restricts us. It doesn't give us access to all of the 200 billion stars in our galaxy, only that subset that are F, G, and K main sequence stars. You also need a stable orbital environment. You want a planet in a place where the conditions are just right for liquid water. You don't want it gravitationally over a short period of time, a few million years, getting pushed into a higher or lower orbit. You go too far away from the star, out of the so-called habitable zone, water freezes. You go too close to the star, you get to become like Venus. All your water evaporates, and you end up with a hot, heavy greenhouse atmosphere. So there's really a very narrow zone where I would expect an Earth-like planet conditions exist, meaning liquid water on the surface. We're going to be provincial. We're just going to talk about liquid water life, because it's what we know. This is going to exclude most of the binary systems. But something like two-thirds to a half of all stars are members of binaries. So now I've suddenly taken that subset of F, G, and K stars, and I have to eliminate 
all of the binary stars. Curiously, this turns out to actually eliminate one of the favorite homes for science fiction writers for life, Alpha Centauri. The nearest star to the Earth is a G star, but it's in a binary. Actually, it's in a triple star system. There's a small M dwarf. There's a G K star fairly close by. The zone of stability for orbits around Alpha Centauri is very limited. So you're not going to find any, very many aliens living around or even human colonists around planets around Alpha Centauri, I'm afraid. It's always the favorite because everyone thinks of it as the stepping stone star in science fiction novels. It's not going to work. And finally, you need metals because you have to have complex chemistry. You must live in a chemically involved environment. You need metals, first of all, to make the rock to stand on. And second, you need the carbon to make complex molecules for the water chemistry. So this means you're now going to exclude all the first generation of stars in our galaxy because they don't have enough metals. They have one less than a percent or a tenth of a percent of the metals the sun has. So you're not going to find planets to start with. And even if you did make a planet, you're not going to have a large abundance of carbon and other elements you need to kick off the complex chemistry. So this is going to be, this, this kind of limits how many stars you can actually use. Even though we've got 200 billion stars in our Milky Way, it's going to strongly limit which ones we can have. I can't have binaries. I've got to have an FG or K main sequence star, and I've got to be in the metal-rich zones of the galaxy. So that means like there's a habitable zone in our solar system where liquid water can exist. There's actually a habitable zone in the galaxy. Not so far out that you're metal poor, not so old that you're metal poor, and as you get closer and closer to the middle, some of the dynamics of that may in fact make a very difficult environment. So we really do have a restricted problem. Now, how do we determine the fraction of stars that meet these criteria within our galaxy actually exist? How do I count that number up? This is the scariest equation I've ever seen in my life. It's called the Drake equation. Well, it's not the scariest, but it's certainly a pretty scary looking one. There's a lot of pieces here. I don't expect you to memorize this, but certainly sort of understand how it works. What the Drake equation is, was thought up by Frank Drake in the 1960s, is an attempt to estimate in round numbers, how many stars within our own galaxy would satisfy the conditions for life? Obviously, you need to talk about the number of advanced civilizations in a galaxy is going to depend upon, the first number here is the rate at which you form F, G, and K stars, sun-like stars. If you're not forming new stars, you're going to run out of possible new homes right away. So you need to look at the so-called star formation rate. That's a good number because we can measure it. Then you need to know the fraction of stars that actually are born with planetary systems. That also is, in principle, an observable number, because we can count up the number of planetary systems around nearby stars. That's why people are searching so hard for nearby planetary systems. Then you multiply by the number of those planetary systems that possess Earth-like planets. So it isn't enough that you have a planetary system. You've got to have an Earth. You've got to have somewhere to stand. Gas giants are probably not a good place to look for life like us. Yeah, OK, it's a provincial view. There could be floating gas bag life. but Let's just stick with what we know. Then there comes three fractions. The fraction of those Earth-like, first of all, you take the number of stars you get, multiply by the num fraction of those stars that have planetary systems. You've excluded the binaries at this point and the metal poor stars. Now, of that fraction with planetary systems, what number of those have planets, Earth-like planets per system? After those, what fraction of the Earth-like planets actually had liquid water and therefore life? Once you have life, what fraction of those did the life evolve into intelligent life, meeting our qualifications for intelligence before? 
of those that are intelligent which actually developed communication technology. Frank Drake was looking at so-called SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence using uh, radio waves, so he was interested in that number. And finally, how long does that advanced civilization last? What's the lifetime of that advanced civilization? Maybe they move on to a different state, maybe they blow themselves up. Who knows? So all these numbers have to go into this estimate. To give you an idea of how this works, let's do a little exercise. How many people in the, on the Earth are asleep at any given time? Anybody have an idea what that number would be? Yeah, hard to guess, but you can guess it. What's the number of people on the Earth total in round numbers? Anybody? About six billion people. How many hours do you sleep a night? Seven, eight, any other numbers? Call it eight. All right, so people, let's assume everyone sleeps on average about eight hours a night. How many hours are there in a day? Twenty-four. Okay, so that means on average people sleep 8 over 24 or one-third of a day. It takes one day for the Earth to rotate, so we get a one-day repeating cycle. So if I have 6 billion people spread over the Earth, and they sleep on average one-third of a day, I expect at any given instant there's one-third of 6 or 2 billion people are asleep at any given instant. Now that's a crude estimate. But that's how the Drake equation works. I could then ask the question, how many of those people who are asleep at any instant wear pajamas? Then I would have to take the number of people on the earth times the fraction of time spent sleeping times the fraction of people who wear pajamas. Okay, I might have to modify that by the fraction of cultures that even have pajamas than the fraction of people within that culture that wear pajamas and so on and so forth. You can see how I can build up piece upon piece to whittle that number down to make that estimate. That's what the Drake equation is. It says, what are all the various conditions I need to satisfy? And you sort of roll through the conditional fractions. Now, there's a lot of measurement in the Drake equation and a lot of conjecture. And I'm going to assert that only the first three terms of the classical Drake equation are actually measurable or me possibly measurable by astronomers. The first is the star formation rate. We actually know that by looking at the galaxy around us. And we actually find that the star formation rate is about one FG or K star per year taking into account the binary fraction. So we don't include formation of, this is formation of non-binary stars of an FG or K main sequence star, about one per year per galaxy, per our galaxy. Of the stars with planets, we're actually getting a handle on that number observationally by looking at the assays of nearby stars in our galaxy to find out what fraction have planetary systems. And the answer turns out to be a number anywhere from 10 to 20 percent. So that's a good number. That's a pretty big number, actually. The second number is the number of Earth-like planets in that system. In principle, that one is measurable, but we haven't measured it yet because we have yet to find a single Earth-mass planet. Not because they're not there. I think it's mostly because our technology has not yet made that breakthrough to the requirements we need technically to see those Earth-like planets. But we're getting there. I think in the next decade, or maybe less, we're going to start seeing Earth-like planets in Earth-like orbits showing up around nearby G, 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 K, and, M, and F stars. Just a guess, but I have a good confidence in it because I've been involved in some of the, what I would call the lead-up work to that. There's a lot of hope out there. It may come from microlensing, it may come from space missions, but we're getting there. It's just we're not there yet. But in principle, this number is measured. This number is being measured, the fraction of planets. The rate of star formation has been measured. And the number of Earth-like planets per system is in principle measurable within the next decade. 
Everything else, however, in that long Drake equation is purely conjectural at this point because I have no basis for making those judgments except our own system. So let's actually take this, these numbers and some basic conjecture and see what we get. And I'll call this the shamelessly optimistic view of life in the Get Milky Way. The optimistic view is, I don't know the number of Earth mass planets per solar system, but I'm going to guess that about 1 in 10 of solar systems have an Earth-like planet in the right spot. Okay? Now I'm going to make the following conjectures. One is I'm going to make the optimistic conjecture that if you have an Earth-like planet with liquid water, life is simply inevitable. Because wherever there's water on this planet, there's life, period. doesn't matter. It's pond scum, there's life. The poles, there's life. Life just appears anywhere that water is liquid. Hell, it even appears in some places where the water is ice. So if you got water, you got life. That's one. Then I'm going to say, if life emerges and it's reasonably well protected, it's inevitable that one of those creatures is going to evolve to intelligence. That's a very optimistic view, but let's just take it. Second, I'm going to assume that, very optimistically, that if it becomes intelligent, it will eventually learn how to manipulate electromagnetic radiation, a.k.a. it builds a radio. So radio communications is inevitable if it becomes intelligent. And then I'm going to make an optimistic slash pessimistic view that the life exists for at least 100 years in the technological state because we have been in a technological state for at least 100 years and we haven't nuked ourselves into oblivion yet. I would like to think that number is larger. Unfortunately, I also watch the news at night, so I'm not always as confident as I'd like to be. L is a big question mark. When we develop the, not the ability to manipulate electromagnetic radiation, but the ability to manipulate the atom, that's when we got ourselves into trouble. We now have the capability of annihilating our species. Do all species face that similar choice when they make that breakthrough to understanding the atom? Don't know. Let's punch in the numbers using the rate of star formation and the fraction of planets and use the high number, 20%, number of Earths, the tenths, run the numbers through, and the answer I get is two in the Milky Way galaxy. Well, we know of at least one. So even this shamelessly optimistic view predicts that there's one other somewhere in the galaxy. But there's no guarantee it's next to us. And this is the challenge. So even if we take all these things into account, life is pretty rare. Intelligent life may be even rarer. Now, this may be missing some points. There may be some other numbers where I can push it, but you know... I've shoved these numbers all the way to their max. F only gets as big as 1. It's a fraction. Maybe L is a lot bigger than we think. Maybe I can push on L. I probably can't push on the fraction of planets or the fraction of Earth-like planets. Maybe I've got to expand myself beyond Earth-like planets, but I can't push those numbers very much harder. This is a rather depressing number, perfectly frank, but the only thing that makes it optimistic is if that's 2 per galaxy multiplied by 200 billion galaxies. That's a lot of life. It's just not nearby. Now, I'm going to very briefly mention what I think about extraterrestrial visitors, and I think the answer to that is no. And the reason I think it's no is because extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof, and nobody has offered even the slightest scintilla of extraordinary proof for extraterrestrial visitation. They've, the best they can give me are really fuzzy photographs, most of which are actually patent fakes, even the most obviously can be seen as patent fakes. Anecdotal accounts, oh, I feel in my heart I was abducted by these aliens and they did some rather kinky things to me, doesn't exactly constitute scientific proof. And claims of government conspiracy, that's just weak.
No one's ever really done it. Now, let's face it. If someone has a technology capable of crossing the stars, you'd think they'd know who to talk to than Joe Blow in the woods. I think they could figure out who runs the planet. Now, maybe they are talking to Dick Cheney, but we don't know. Now, this is not to say there aren't unexplained sightings of stuff. Perhaps there's stuff in the sky all the time. But just because you don't know what it is doesn't mean that the wildest-ass explanation you come up with is going to be valid. Most things have actually been explained. And for God's sake, don't get me started about the whole ancient astronauts thing. That just pisses me off. All right, so where are they? If intelligent life, if I'm wrong, if my estimates are totally pessimistic and life is all over the place, why haven't they visited? Why haven't they come a-knocking? I think there's a good explanation for that. And the explanation is that space is big, space is really vast, and it's really hard to cross extraterrestrial distances. You need enormous amounts of time and enormous amounts of energy to get yourself from one star to another. Just even if you're being optimistic, the fastest spacecraft we've built have been outward bound at 15 kilometers a second, which is 0.005% the speed of light. They're going to need 80,000 years to reach the nearest stars just coasting. That's a minimum energy travel. That means you've got to be real patient. But let's say you're impatient. Let's say you really want to get there now. All right, so I'm going to build a starship that can accelerate to relativistic speeds. Even if I can get to a tenth the speed of light, which is vastly beyond any technology we can possess or even project, it will still take us 50 years to reach Alpha Centauri, and that's kind of a waste because it's basically a binary star. So maybe I'll go to Tau Ceti or someplace like that. Tau Ceti, by the way, is the so Tau Ceti, Epsilon, Eridani. Those are all nearby stars, about eight stars nearby that have been targeted as possible places to visit. They take us decades to reach if we could build the spacecraft. And even if you could build the spacecraft, the energy costs you're dealing with are absolutely enormous. The amount of fuel you'll need increases exponentially with the acceleration time because you use a whole bunch of fuel up at first, and then it doesn't do any good to get yourself to 90% the speed of light if you can't turn around and stop, which means you need to expend as much fuel to slow down. You just don't want to go blowing past someone. Bye. Okay, there we go. You really want to stop and have a look around. The most efficiency you can get being super optimistic is 50% for matter-energy conversion for matter-antimatter drives, which, by the way, don't exist, because we don't know how to produce antimatter in more than atomic quantities. It'd be nice to produce a cube of antimatter. It'd be dangerous stuff to deal with. It'd be the ultimate weapon, although it'd be impossible to handle. So the problem of the fuel is not finding an efficient fuel. The problem is production efficiency. The amount of energy we would have to expend to make enough antiprotons to make an antiproton proton drive would probably exceed our civilization's energy requirements by factors of hundreds or thousands. We would have to basically tap into the energy of the sun in some very efficient way to do that. And I don't need to tell you how much trouble we have with energy these days. So this is going to be a real problem. You have to dedicate a tremendous amount of resources to building up these kinds of, of technology to get there. Now, it's possible, it's not possible for us now, but a sufficiently advanced technology might be able to muster the resources. They would need planetary-scale resources to pull this off, and they would need to be able to tap their own sun for a lot of that energy to build the antimatter to do the ship. And you know what? This is such a bad idea, I can't imagine why anyone would do it. And the reason is because talk is cheap. And this is where I think we're really going to run into people. If ET's out there, we're not going to shake his hand we're going to pick up the phone. 
If you really want to bridge interstellar distances, cut out the middleman. Moving matter around costs a lot. Photons are cheap. They're easy to produce, they're easy to mass produce, and they move at the ultimate speed in the universe, and they don't require infinite energy. They're easy to produce. Messages travel at the speed of light, and the energy cost per, per, is, per message is extremely small, right? The number of minutes you get on the interstellar cell phone are unbelievably cheap compared to trying to actually transport that cell phone itself across interstellar space. The trick is, what wavelengths do you want to use? You don't want to use visible light, per se. You might use a laser or something which has some unusual properties that says, hey, look at me. Turns out that really the wavelengths you probably want to use are microwaves in between 1,000 to 10,000 megahertz. Turns out to be a region where there's a hole in the cosmic background noise. It's called the water hole because it actually sits in a place where there's, strong water, um, there's no strong water absorption in the, in the uh, galaxy. And so it's a place where it's a quiet place to go looking. It's radio silence land. Nothing very much emits there naturally. And you want to be looking for unnatural artificial signals. You think a person who could figure out how to send such a signal would know where to send it. So the first place to look is in the waterhole. The other is to use lasers. Lasers at visible and infrared wavelengths, there are no natural laser sources that we have encountered in our survey of the universe. So finding laser light coming across the depths of interstellar space probably came from somebody rather than something. Here's the spectrum of the radio spectrum of the sky where brightness is background level. This is the cosmic background radiation. This is absorption by the Earth's atmosphere and the galactic radio background. There's this wonderful zone here called the water hole between about 1,000 and 10,000 megahertz. If you're going to beam radio waves into space, beam them there. In fact, we're already on the air. We've been on the air for about 80 years for now, since the first radio transmissions, because our radio transmissions are sloppy and electromagnetic radiation has been pouring off the Earth for the last 80 years. We've had worldwide broadcasts of radio programs since the 1920s. We've had television, complex information transfer since the 1950s. And we know that if we take the power output of all the Earth's radio and television stations and cell phones and pagers and add them up, our radio antennas could easily pick those up within the circle about 100 light years around the Earth. So if anyone out there is also using a similar technology, we actually could detect that. Now, it's kind of scary to think that our first contact with aliens is going to be I Love Lucy. But anybody outside of 40 light years with the right equipment can, in fact, pick up the original, the original versions of I Love Lucy from our stray radio noise. But that's 40 light years. We have to wait a little longer to get a little further out. But all you have to do is wait. Time is on your side. Now, there is something interesting about the Earth's radio power output. We're getting quieter over time. Cable television, fiber optic cables, very tight bandwidth requirements, meaning tight beaming of radio ra radiation, encryption. We're making it hard for our own people to listen to our conversations. And actually, our radio power may, in fact, drop down because broadcasting radio in all directions is wasteful of energy. I really want to direct the energy to that place. Why do I spray it in all directions and hope that they pick off a fraction? I can use far less power if I can beam. So advanced civilizations may find that advanced communication requires greater energy efficiency because energy is not cheap. And therefore, we'll actually go radio quiet. So that's kind of a counterpoise to this.
We'll use directed radiation and underground cable TV, for example. So, you know, alien civilizations will pick up I Love Lucy, but they'll never see The Sopranos because it only appears on cable. Now, so that's the idea of waste energy. To find a civilization, we may have to catch them during that brief period when they're being wasteful. So we've set up a search called, ah, darn, I'm sorry. I've gone over time. The rest of it's in your notes, and I'll see you all tomorrow. Goodness gracious, I'm embarrassed.